Welcome to the Perp Web Podcast, hosted by Joe Bosch. Ethics in healthcare. We're back. This whole this whole section is going to be a lot about ethics. So, Ant and Gretchen, you already know Ant yesterday. Yes. So I'm just trying to speed things up for her benefit, and and because I ran late. Thank you, Joe, and thanks. I'm glad to be back, and let's get started on ethics in healthcare. Um, this segment, I think, is going to be really good with all the presentations. It's going to be great. So if you just look up what ethics is, and I just left it on the slide all by itself because I really had to read it a few times, and I thought, well, that is, that's, really, that's really it. Uh, moral principles that govern a person's behavior of the conducting of an activity. So I had to really kind of sit and dwell on that for a minute. And I thought, you know, that really does kind of explain it all in terms of what ethics is and especially in healthcare and for perfusion. So Hippocrates, father of medicine, so I thought it'd be interesting to kind of look at what he had said about it all back in the day. Um, all of our uh, MDs take a Hippocratic oath. So a translation of that is, I will follow that system of regimen, which according to my ability and judgment, I consider for the benefit of my patients and abstain from whatever is deleterious and mischievous. I thought it was an interesting mischievous. I know, I like that. <laughs> and actually he wrote many works because um, I think all of us are probably drawn to the first do no harm mm -hmm. statement. And uh, it's actually from another work of his called Of the Epidemics, which what a, what a timely uh, work, which was really done in like 400 BC. So, but titled Of the Ep Epidemics, which we can all think to ourselves, wow, uh, what is old is new again, yes. unfortunately. Yeah. So the physician must be able to tell the antecedents, meaning what's come before, know the present, and foretell the future, must mediate these things, and have two special objects in view with regard to disease, namely, to do good or to do no harm. And I think everybody really identifies with the first do no harm. So that's kind of where that comes from. And again, I think every MD out there um, knows this very, very well. So healthcare ethical principles, there, uh, if you Google and look around, you'll, you'll see four referenced uh, often. Autonomy, which is to specify the wishes of the patient to protect their autonomy, to, uh, so that they're in charge of their decisions. Mm -hmm. Another principle is justice, meaning following the guidelines and treat patients alike, meaning everyone gets the same care. I think we can all talk about some ethical dilemmas around that at times. Uh, beneficence, which is to seek the patient's best interest. I think perfusionists um, have some stories they could tell about being conflicted there. And non-malfeasance, which what harms are avoidable. Again, back to that do no harm. So that's kind of what should be guiding us in healthcare. And again, I'll we'll talk a little bit later about you know, how perfusionists kind of get can get caught in, in the middle of some of that. So common ethical dilemmas for us in healthcare, I think these are all, every single one of us can identify with this. End of life issues, issues surrounding medical futility, uh, revealing mistakes to patients, 
reporting impaired colleagues and access to care. I think we all have dealt with this in some way, form or another over our careers. So I kind of looked around and I was uh, looking for actual dilemmas in healthcare, things that, you know, kind of frank, keeping it real talk about, you know, what do you think about this and the hard questions. And I did find a, a survey. This was about 10,000 uh, physicians, mostly uh, family practice and internal medicine. But I grabbed some of these slides because I thought, you know, this is kind of interesting. And I wonder if we would all feel the same. So if you look at the first one, the question is, should physician-assisted suicide be allowed in some situations? Mm -hmm. Really hard question. And they're almost split on yes or no. Yeah. And that's, I, and that's I, interesting. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then uh, again, back to the impaired colleague. So if you, if a physician friend or colleague were impaired, alcohol, drugs, or illness, or was no longer competent, and he or she ignored your warnings to get help, would you report that person to a superior or to the state medical board? And you see an overwhelming yes there. I'm shocked that there are any no's, and I'm shocked that there is a big difference. Right. And some of the comments mm -hmm. after that, these, you can go and, and find this um, survey, um, some interesting comments. And I did put some at the end of these slides. So to continue, here's here we go with some transplantation. And I know we've all kind of wondered about this over time. Should it be legal for people to buy organs for transplant? If they would not be able to receive an organ by waiting their turn through the national database. And, you know, again, some people think in certain circumstances, maybe yes. Is this U.S. only or is this worldwide? This uh, was an American oh my God. study there. Wow. 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 And then about, you know, we all talk about HIPAA all day long. We're, it's around us. We're always having to take courses around it. So the question was, is it ever acceptable to break patient confidentiality if you know that a patient's health status may be harming others? And almost oh. half of them are willing to do that. Um, I think one of the common dilemmas that is going to be referenced here in the comments was um, an HIV status without the partner knowing. Mm -hmm. I think that was kind of the instance where someone was saying, physicians were saying that might actually be okay. So again, dilemmas, and they're not easy, and we've all seen this over our <laughs> practice and our, you know, our time in the profession, these things come up. And so then they were asked, what was your biggest ethical dilemma? And it might be hard to read, but um, underneath the comments were reporting an incompetent or impaired colleague, uh, owning up after making a medical error, physician-patient confidentiality when one half of the couple is HIV positive and the other half doesn't know, prolonging fetal care for a dying patient. Um, you know, unfortunately, maybe in this last year, Maybe many of us in perfusion have um, either been exposed to this, been a part of this, witnessed this. Uh, denying care to a non-paying patient. Again, we've, we've all been kind of caught in some of those circumstances where you're just very torn. 
and just kind of wonder, you know, what's going on here, and I feel like I'm just part of this bad situation. Yeah. Uh, whether to honor a family's request not to tell a relative that he, she has a terminal illness. Exaggerating a patient's condition to get insurance coverage. Oh gosh. <laughs> Playing games, you know, to, well, you know, I think we're compassionate humans at, at the base, you know, and then there's physicians and there's all these other things going on in healthcare that conflict and that are at odds. So how do you deal with it? And then uh, writing a prescription for a family member or friend. I think we kind of all that really unethical. Yes, yes, but we've all. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you're on camera. <laughs> lots of people know. About I plead it, the Fifth Amendment, but you know it is. I mean, you know, really. <laughs> I mean, how do we get? I mean, what's our? I mean, our exam room is usually the hospital hallway. Our exam room is the hospital hallway. How many times we're walking along, hey, this is what's going on. You, you know, I mean, we can't get to the, we can't go to a doctor's visit. We can't get out of work. We get treated at work. You know, for most of our problems. It's very difficult. That's interesting. I didn't, would not have thought that was a, uh, I just didn't think that was anything wrong with that at all. Well, and they want you healthy so you can do their work, <laughs> so you can pump their case. Sorry. That's right. Yeah, I know. I mean, I agree with you. How many times have you seen somebody say, hey, I need a Z-Pack or, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've got a staph infection. I need some augmentin. Quick. Yeah, can you write me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, like you said, we're on camera, so. <laughs> yeah. Next slide. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but for, for perfusion, what do you... What are some of our ethical challenges? And I know uh, people out there can add to this, but I just, off the top of my head, um, just so you understand that, and we talked about it a little bit yesterday, that being awarded your certification, there is a code of ethics for the CCP. And um, I would, you know, if you ever want to revisit them on the website, they're there in the book of, book of booklet of information. So you can just kind of see what, what we're being held to. I think a lot of it is intuitive, but again, if you just want to see. And we did kind of touch on it yesterday that uh, we can be contacted. We do get contacted at times um, for, you know, to look at some ethical uh, issues. But again, uh, it's probably being dealt with more at the local employment level before it uh, gets to us. But it's, it's certainly available, and we are, um, we do have a committee and we do look into it. I think part, some of my biggest dilemmas have been because I'm under the supervision of a physician. How many times, you know, do you have to perform a task that you might not really agree with? Um, it's hard to tell, for me, I don't know if it is for everyone, it's hard to tell a surgeon no. I don't like to tell surgeons no. I like to be able to do everything they want. <laughs> and it, you, it's hard. But you know, some and you you are under their supervision as a as as a legal matter usually in the room. They are the captain of the ship, so I can see a lot of dilemma coming up that way when they ask you to do something. Uh, dealing with end of life issues, unfortunately, 
for us, if we're dealing with patients uh, in the ICU on devices, a lot of times that is at our hands. And that we are the ones that are turning off the ECMO or the VAD. And I don't know if we've been adequately prepared for that. Um, I think you're all trained very well in the OR and how everything, the dynamics of an OR, but in a uh, in an ICU room with family, um, it's I for one that's out of my comfort zone as a rule. Uh, it's not where I feel comfortable, but we're being put there more often these days. And I, I don't know if we really are training and educating to that piece. Um, I've heard some program directors actually try to get their students involved in how to talk to patients and families. They'll um, let them make maybe one of the phone calls out to give status update during the case, under supervision, of course. But um, it's a part of my training that I didn't really uh, feel like I was prepared for. And Maybe that's changing. I'd love to hear from program directors and what they're doing with that. Um, I recently took a survey that got sent out about end of life. And do you feel like we're being trained and prepared? I find it very difficult um, dealing with patients and family during this time. Again, some of these patients are totally with it. Very late, as we're going to hear in some of the stories that are going to come up in this segment. and. How do you, I always feel very, like, I don't want to say anything. I just, because I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I'm afraid of, you know, maybe doing something that could be construed as illegal. Yeah. Am I violating HIPAA and I don't even know it? Now the hospital's at risk. I'm not real happy with me. <laughs> or conflicting with yeah. other people's opinions or thoughts that, uh, or message that have been given that patient. Right. Right. Or if the news is, is not looking good for mm -hmm. that patient, you don't want to say anything that would be misinterpreted. Um, yeah. Yeah. I tend to always just defer to the bedside nurse or the physician. And I'll just say, um, I'm the perfusionist. I'm taking care of, you know, the heart lung machine or the ECMO equipment. And, you know, I'll get the nurse because I feel very uncomfortable. You know, just like that, I don't want to say the wrong thing, and I certainly but, you uh, know, don't want to. Don't don't you find now these patients that we're having for very long times? It's 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 less and less easy to do that because that's kind it's of an, it's almost impossible. Because you're you're you, sometimes you're the, the only one there with exactly. the family for right. that because the nurse is busy and you're there with the circuit, right. and you are spending hours and hours with these family members or with these patients, and it very I found just in this last year it's become almost completely impossible to be able to use that I'm here for the machine right. I, you know like yeah, they just don't let you because mm -hmm. you're just there and they want to talk to someone mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and that's the thing yeah. you're, you might be the only one that appears not to be very busy right. at mm -hmm. the time and they want to know things and you're not sure what they've been told right exactly and I think that and I also think and there are ways that but it takes some you know experience and savvy yeah, but I think yeah. too that um, uh, more and more I think we are being thrust into positions and being treated way differently than we were 20 30 or more years mm -hmm. ago our positions are being 
seen by others as being um, more included in the decision-making processes, the care plans, the our opinions, our you know views on things, our suggestions on things, very different than it was 30 years ago. And I guess with that kind of input, we have to carry some of the burden that comes with it, mm -hmm. and that's being around the difficult situations. But I do agree with you. I don't think I was trained on that at all. Right. So yeah. then you feel, then you feel like you're kind of making it up on the fly of yeah. how to how to do it, and then is it also stressful for you? And again, I just I don't think we've been really prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And you want to be comforting, and you want you want to be well, at least supportive. Mm -hmm. And it's but you almost feel like you want to be hopeful, but then you feel like you're being well, yeah, false not hope. truthful, right? Definitely. I know you, right. you you're don't. not doing it truthfully. Exactly, you're not being sincere. Yeah. It's not genuine. Right, right. You're yeah. just saying something, hoping that it makes them feel better. Right, mm -hmm. and it's just, I, I really do. I do, I do not like it, and I, because I just feel unprepared for it. Yeah, there was a reason I wanted to work in the OR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, my, my standard, uh, my standard comment usually is, you know, we're all doing the best. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, keep the prayers up. You know, I'm sure that the intending physician taking care of your loved one has been communicating with you. Um, everyone is doing the best they can. You, know, you do need to get some rest too, you know, things like that. I, I tend to avoid um, ever saying anything like, you know, he's really sick or, mm -hmm. you know, I'm very hopeful or anything like that. Unless I'm like, we're ready to wean them off. Right, like you we're going to come off right yeah. then. Yeah. And then you know he's going to hear yeah. yeah. <laughs> But even when you're not yeah. communicating medical information, just having to spend so much time with mm -hmm. the family members or with the patients, mm -hmm. um, it's a lot different than I'm used to. Well, I think you can be, yes, but I think you can be human without being specific. I think you can avoid giving medical information mm -hmm. but just simply being emotionally there yes. and someone that they can hug or whatever it may be you don't have you know you don't have to be the the expert on anything you can just be human mm -hmm. the worst this is this is like their darkest time and so i, I can't i can't be cold or indifferent or totally separated, but I don't have to say anything about how they're doing and still connect with that person, whomever that might be. It just depends. I think sometimes some family members just won't let you just be there. They really want something from you. Right, and mm -hmm. they will continue to push to get it. Yes. 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 Because they want to mm -hmm. hear something. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. where it, it's almost, you want to almost be aloof and not. Right. I want like, to go, make... go to the bathroom right yeah. at that moment. <laughs> I think that's training, man. I think you brought it up very well. I think it's training. I think you can train yourself to deflect even the most persistent family member. I do think that that's something I've gotten a little better at in this past year, but I was completely unprepared in the beginning. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, well, we've had a lot of history next year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And join us, Patrick, everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Patrick, yes. Yeah. Everybody knows Patrick. Yeah. Um, I've even gone so far as to say, look, there are, you know, we have a command structure in the hospital. You're being, the physicians are giving you information. I have a very small area that I work in, and all of that is taken into consideration when they make their analyses. So I can't really say anything because it's out of context. And most of the time, they'll, they'll say, okay, I can understand that, yeah. and move on. Mm-hmm. There's always ways to get, you know, I used but to be a cop, and, you know, I know, how to, I know how to get around all that, <laughs> especially when you're but you have a lot of experience. You have a lot of experience. And so what Anne's saying is definitely there's a void. Yes. And we need to, um, yeah, I think it needs to be incorporated in the training you know, while they're mm-hmm. a student. That's a, a skill that needs to be developed. And I, I just found you the faculty member for your lecture uh, for you. the students. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> You're so thoughtful. Well, and, and, and not just that but also the effect i think it has on us you know we got into this field with very little patient uh contact right we're supposed to be in the or we're Mm -hmm. not really dealing a lot with patients and the effect that it has on us as caregivers is quite different Mm -hmm. Um, you know you lose patients in the or but it's different when you've spent lots of time with them you know all of their family and um, their names you know you know yeah, their dog you know all of their children you know everything about them because you've been there with them for weeks mm-hmm. it's it's really something quite different and I'll, I'll add to that if i can and i don't mean to interrupt you but i'll say this and uh of course kimberly was a nurse in the icu now she's a nurse practitioner but she's still a nurse i have gained so much respect for nurses in the critical care unit over yes. this past year. And I thought I had a lot of respect for them. I always did. Mm-hmm. But way more so than I ever did before. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, what they endure and go through and all of the things that they do um, is absolutely, it's, it is extremely humbling to me. It makes me feel like, it, and, you know, it's, it's, it's comparatively, I have an easy job. Mm-hmm. Comparatively. I tell yes. them all the time I could never do what you do. Mm-hmm. No, I, feel I, the I same couldn't way. do it. So there's the not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that brings up what has been your biggest ethical dilemma. This ah. <laughs> talk is so appropriate. <laughs> well, Patrick, you're just on time. <laughs> first. Your biggest ethical you know, dilemma. Okay, sure. I'll tell it. Um, I, I think I called you that. Not naming places or people, just you and me. You know, okay. uh, it was. Uh, it, <laughs> no, I'm just saying. Normally, don't it, mention places or people. I, I won't. I won't. It normally does not bother me to discontinue uh, care mm-hmm. because you know we know the numbers. We know that this patient isn't going to recover. It's been talked about, and it's time to do it. But there was some problem, some reason on this one case where it just it was. It was a personal thing. It just hit me because I I've discontinued care on probably ten people this year, you know, just because of COVID. And that's that's you know after a while this one just wore on me. I don't know why this one was different, but it just hit me. I was thinking, okay, so this guy was born, and uh, on a day, you know, lived his whole life. He had people he loved. There's people he loved, you know, that, that loved him as well, 
and and we had to change his oxygenator out. We didn't think he was going to survive the change out. So I was like, well, I could do it now or I could do it six hours from now. And I was thinking, so I choose the time he dies. <laughs> Me, yeah. I choose. And I was, remember, I called you. I called everybody that night. I was yeah. like, I don't know. I mean, should we just not change the oxygenator or should we just change it? And, you know, die? you know, it was just for some reason that one bothered me yeah. more than the other ones. Well, and there was nothing special about that one patient. It was just that time of the year where I had done a lot of those lately. And I was just like, you know, what are we doing? Right. I think <laughs> right. it just shows that you're human. It's human. Yeah. Because I've had, Yo, I've had you, one everybody's this year, done too, it. Sure. Yeah. you know, for I don't know why. One particular patient uh, just was, it was, the my cup was full, and when it was time for that patient to die, it was just too much. Yeah. You know, when, when we start thinking about why we are doing what we do, what we do every single day, that that's, it, it's beyond us. It's bigger than us, and it's like that's a human being. That's like you said. That's someone. That's a, a human being that was created by the divine creator, and now we, as a flawed human, are in, involved in deciding when that person. So when, and sometimes it, you don't know when that's going to trickle into just the role that we play. I mean, we all are skilled, knowledgeable, and experienced perfusionists. And the, the, what we do, we do well, and we can do that function. But when I start thinking about the why and that shifts, it's too much. It mm -hmm. takes over. For mm -hmm. me, that's those moments mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, um, it's humbling. Yes. And it, it yes. keeps me like, it keeps me humble. It does, but it's tough. And we, you, you all, much more than me. I mean, I'm, I'm more on the education side now. I, I still work clinically, but this year has been difficult for my Absolutely. colleagues. And you see it. You see it. And I think we all have we, PTSD. I do. Yeah. I think there's I think, a lot of PTSD. I, mm -hmm. I, really I have told people this several times now that I feel this year in particular has had more of an effect on me. Uh, emotionally than uh, at any point in my career. I feel like I've been in a mass casualty event every day for the past 36 or, or 24, uh, 12 months. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is, 36. Yeah. Because it feels like it's well, forever. Yeah. For the right. past year, I guess, putting it more you know, yeah. succinctly. What about you? Do you, you, I mean, you don't have to, so do you have any particular ethical dilemmas? Um, well, Actually, my talk's going to be a little bit about one. I was going to say, you're one. giving a great talk here. Um, but sometimes I feel like, even though it's not our decision, just this continuing on, we must go forward, we will continue with it. I have trouble with that sometimes because I, I see what it does to the family. I see the loss of dignity to some of these patients that you know aren't going to be recoverable. And um, it, as much as you want it to be a miracle, you just know it's not. And it's, it's hard to look at yourself sometimes, knowing that you're just per perpetuating on this kind of torture, if you will, for the family.
family because you know as much as they want that person to recover and and be with them again that they're not going to and we are just keeping them from ever getting to the point where they can start trying mm -hmm. to heal and it's it's hard mm -hmm. it is and it's not you know it's not every day it's just some days when you're feeling maybe a little worn down a little tired it just you you look at what you're doing with you know the patients that aren't doing well and you've been with them for so long and they're just starting to look every day a little bit worse a little less human and it just it's it'll just catch you off guard yeah it's a movie that just goes on forever yeah. mm -hmm. yes very much so yeah yeah that was a really that was a really good uh that was really good you know that what's that saying there's another saying it's never a bad time to do the right thing mm -hmm. but at the same time in regards to what you just said i've been tricked before i've seen it happen i remember a patient and i said somebody asked me i said you know i think grandma is going to be done before the turkey comes out of the oven it's close to thanksgiving she walked out of the hospital right so when you see something like that yeah then you're like well yeah. Who am I? Yes, exactly. it really <laughs> exactly. made me take a step back and go, whoa, well, glad I wasn't making well, That's decisions. what I was going to say is, thank goodness I'm not in charge of that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But is that's there a fate, you know, is there, yeah, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. And what's right, what's wrong, what's legal, what's not legal, what's mm -hmm. ethical, what's not ethical. You know, is there, are there, are there fates? You know, are their fates worse than death? You know, it, it's such a, you don't know, you know, there could be, I don't know. Well, it depends on you. Patients have talked about, you know, the, the ketamine nightmares and things. Yeah. You know, those sound really bad. Those do mm -hmm. sound bad. And how long do they go on for? What's going to be the quality of life if the person yeah. does survive this? You know, I mean, we look at these, uh, you don't have to look very far. You know, you look at the television and you see, the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, which I think is an incredibly, you know, incredible foundation, you know, uh, uh, Siller, you know, the guy that runs it, um, and Frank. And uh, you see these soldiers with, you know, two legs and an arm blown off. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're getting these uh, smart technology homes, smart home technology. Um, and they're, uh, but they're, 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 they're living. You know, I don't know that I would, I don't know. You know, and you, you go all the way back to Forrest Gump or whatever the guy's name was. What was the name of that movie? Was yeah. it Forrest Gump? Mm -hmm. Is that the name yeah. of it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Lieutenant Dan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and he was just so mad in the beginning that he uh, that that he saved his life versus right. Why die. did you save me? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah. You know, so it's so individual. It's so it is. you know, you know, I, I don't know the answer. Another thing that's happened lately, though, is, you know, some of our COVID patients are really young. Yeah. And, um, wow. you know, they're way younger than me. <laughs> that just, you're like, wow, that was me, you know, in my 30s. And I, you know. Right. Yeah. It really hits home. Well, hard. especially for us. Because a lot of our patients, or, when you're younger, for these things, yeah. when you're going, you know, hey, this is just some old guy. Yeah. I hate to say that, but it's true. <laughs> They've lived a life. <laughs> You're not an old guy. I'm old, like, but it's all. You, you've had, you've had a good life. You've younger ones. We mostly you know. see older adults. And so it's yeah. a different way of thinking. And no, you don't want them to die. No, of time's course not, not up, but yeah. they've lived some life. Mm -hmm. And it's different when you have a patient who 
you know, just had their first baby. Yeah, or in and with with heart surgery, you're you're trying to improve their quality of life. Yeah, the goal is, you know, this is going to help them. I'm not sure about ECMO. Yeah, <laughs> the COVID ECMO patients that have been intubated for two weeks before we put them on. You know, I don't know, I don't know if we're going to improve their lives. Right, I think we'll know? learn a lot from that. But you know, Patrick, at the same time, and I'd like you to feel, be, uh, to to get your feedback on this. You know, we have pretty bad results. Um, I'm pretty disappointed. Uh, about twenty percent overall survival. It's very low, and I for our COVID for our COVID, yeah, not for <laughs> yeah. not for our regular not for our regular practice. <laughs> right. Let's make that clear. Yeah. Yes, let's be clear. Please come to work for us. Yes. That's not our results. Right. Um, but I don't think that's, that's, I think that's, that's common, uh, with this disease given certain circumstances worse, uh, in the second wave. And I think that has to do with delayed care, but we won't debate that, but then in the earlier days, but even at 20%, Patrick, if you're one of those yeah. 20%, it matters to you or yeah. your family. Yeah. Yep. So yeah. that's where the dilemma comes. Sure. Right. <coughs> because that's their COVID. snapshot. I mean yeah. that's that's their blip. They don't really know about the other yeah fifty you've done and that haven't turned out so well. It, that, they don't care anything about that. Mm-hmm. It's it's their patient, their their loved one, or right. them, their yeah. family, or right. them, right? Yeah. Right. The case may so be. they they don't really care what your percentages. <laughs> yeah, they really are. Don't. You know, I, I you know right. I want to live. And then it gets very dicey because now you have. We're giving care to this person. This is their predicted mortality uh, or predicted survival. And we're doing it to this person, this person, this person, this person. Eventually, you run out of space at the end. You run out of technology. You run out of people that can take care of these patients. And you have all of these patients with very, very low, not zero, because you can't ever, there is no absolute unless it becomes incapacitated. There's no absolutes in any of this but then the ideal candidate walks through comes through the door and you have you do you say we're going to discontinue here when do you make that decision who's going to make that decision how do you make that decision this becomes very complex in a world with unlimited resources in the utopia that doesn't exist that's okay because you can still take care of that other patient but the harsh reality is nobody has unlimited resources. Right. Nobody has unlimited space. And how many times does a, uh, it could be a cardiologist, could be a surgeon, could be uh, anybody, an oncologist, say, you're just not a candidate. I can't help you. But they're very much alive talking to them. Right. And they know that the outcome mm-hmm. is going to be very negative in a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. So these are realities, unfortunately, of life. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't matter whether you're in a capitalist society, whether you're in a socialist society, it doesn't, I'm not trying, I'm not going to debate all of that right. and resource availability. The fact of the matter is, no matter where you are in the world, there are not unlimited resources. Right. Period. Yeah. But nobody wants to hear that when it's them. No, absolutely not. And I think, you know, Debbie and I were talking a little bit before we started this segment. Sometimes it just depends on where you land. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and Another you know, true story. Yeah, yeah, yeah very true. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it may, it it depends, and nobody really goes in. Nobody thinks that. Yeah. Everyone thinks wherever I go, I'm going to be you know, well taken care of, and I've got everything. They're going to have everything they need. 
to take care of me. It's a medical center for Christ's sake. Exactly. Right? They says <laughs> medical center. So it could be um whatever small town medical center doesn't mean anything. I'm not gonna name say names of places, but just wherever, you know, in a small community hospital that does a hundred heart surgeries or less a year that has all of the availability. I mean, you have a pump, you have perfusionist, you have a surgeon, you have you have the means to do it, but they don't offer the service because they can't. Right. Yeah. One, they don't have the experience. So if you end up there and two unstable to transfer or no room any place close enough to transfer you to then you're exactly right. If you don't land in the right spot at the right time. Or but that's it, not where their expectation is or where no. maybe every anybody's expectation is. Everybody wants to do all they can. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It seems. Yeah. I mean, I think we all go into it wanting to do everything we can. Yeah. Understood. Yes. Well, I know we're going to have more ethical yeah. challenges coming up. And I need to ask, do you, do you need to go? I can give Kim my chair. <laughs> so you do, you do, you do, no, do you need to go? That's no, I question. don't need to rush out. Okay, then but that's fine. I, no, please, no, please know. stay. Please we stay. Have a plan Kim for wants this. to do a oh, lot of okay. work. We have a plan. I just needed to know. Okay. So, uh, 